Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. So welcome to the Heritage Foundation. We are here today because Americans are concerned about their health care. Healthcare remains a top priority for about 70% of voters who say it's their number one concern. And they share with us that they are worried about some very clear things. They think their costs are too high. They think they have reduced choices. And they don't feel like they're in charge of their health care. And they want to know that when they or their loved ones get sick, that they'll be able to see a doctor. And they tell us that they are afraid, that they think that when they get sick, that that ability might be taken away from them. These are real concerns, and they deserve real solutions. So today, we will examine liberal proposals that say that they speak to these concerns. Um, one proposal is called Medicare for All. This is a proposal that would outlaw private coverage and put almost all of us on a government-run plan. And it is a, a support, a bill that would implement it is supported by almost half of all House Democrat members, 14 senators, including four who are running for president. Another proposal, um, which I'll call Medicare for All Light, just for the sake of, uh, of, of ease of reference, gives all Americans the ability to enroll in a new government-run plan. And on the surface, I think these ideas seem like they're easy solutions. Um, but and, if, and depending on what poll you look at, we see slim majorities to majorities of Americans saying that they're interested in them. Um, so today we're going to learn more about what these proposals will do, uh, whether or not they deliver on Americans' hopes for their health care, and particularly, we're going to focus on the impact on patients. Um, will they be able to have the coverage they want, see the doctors they need, and uh, in times that they find valuable to them? So to start with, I'm pleased to introduce Senator Braun. He is from Indiana and a former CEO and founder of companies that today employ hundreds of Americans. As a business leader, he led work to make sure that his employees got what they wanted in healthcare, lower costs, the ability to see the doctor they wanted, and the choices they found valuable. And today, he sits on the Senate committee, which is responsible for health care. He cares deeply about approving Americans' ability to get the care they want. And with that, please join me in welcoming the senator. This is a big topic, and I'm going to try to get it covered in seven or eight minutes, so course, I've been spending my entire entrepreneurial career trying to figure out health care as I'm running a logistics and distribution company. Never wanted to do it, but uh, as I said earlier in the panel, did it out of necessity. We've got a limited window to get this done correctly. You heard it last night on TV, discussion of Medicare for All, uh, how you can talk about something that would be $32 trillion estimated over 10 years, uh, $3.2 a year. And by the way, that's about what we 
raise in revenues currently, 3.3 to 3.4. So it's fantasy talk, but I warn everybody on our side, where you believe in free enterprise, not getting government, a broken institution here, even more responsibility in a sector as important as health care. How do we avoid it? Health care has evolved from the time I had my business in the early 80s when I didn't care about it because it didn't have enough employees and you didn't have to worry about it because it didn't cost you much. But as it evolved into the 90s, it started becoming a nagging issue because you knew it was creeping up. It was such a small part of our GDP. By the time you got into the 90s, you know, it's going from 5 or 6% up to seven, eight, or nine, and of course now it's 18 to 19%. How does that happen in the largest sector of your economy? It happens when you have no competition, no transparency, and a consumer that is totally disengaged with his or her own well-being. You know how you all shop when it comes to almost anything you buy, you know the tools you have with transparency. Uh, reminds me of uh, last time I was at the grocery store. Cell phones out. You know, saving and shopping to save a buck on a 5 or $6 item. We don't do any of that. So when I got to the point where enough was enough back in 2008, and I had a little company of just 15 employees for 17 years. Hard scrabble. I learned how to compete. I learned how to keep low overheads, the things you do in all other sectors, because you've got competition at every level, and you've got engaged consumers. So here I am. What am I going to do? Um, well, I radically changed our health care plan. And I want to tell you about it because I think it's a solution if we've got enough time, whether it's government paid for in uh, health care, Medicaid and Medicare, or it's insurance through an employer. They both are going to have providers that have hidden behind no transparency, have not been, you know, weaned and called out in their own industry with competition, because that's what's going to need to happen. We need to shrink health care from 18 to 19 percent down to not 9 or 10 like it is in other one-payer systems across the world or to where they actually employ providers, which is a whole other step. You know, we're not going to go there. We're going to still have the providers we've got now. They just need to get with it. What I did because this is what I had control over, is took the atrophied healthcare consumer and said, hey, we can't keep doing this. Your premiums are going to go up. I can't raise deductibles anymore to moderate those premiums. I'm going to need your help. After getting through with a two- to three-hour meeting with my agent and underwriters, that normally was 15 minutes, and I'd walk out of the room disgusted and just pay the price each year. I had enough back then. I made mine consumer-driven. My employees are engaged in their own well-being, not remediation, 
well-being, not remediation now, because they've changed their point of view. And when I made that tough decision to get rid of copays, one of the three legs to any health care plan, copays, coinsurance, and deductible, remember deductibles couldn't go any higher, I had a $5,000 deductible back in 2008, and even though I never had a layoff in 27 years and paid the highest wage in town, people were starting to squirm because health care was actually becoming more important than your wage and your job. Had a couple employees quit back then. They thought it was too out there. Had several others explain, what am I up to? I said, I'll tell you what I'm up to. I want you down the road to have health insurance that's affordable. It's not going to be based upon paying for everything, but when you get critically ill or have a bad accident, I'm going to be there. I believe it's a right in this country. I covered pre-existing conditions and no cap on coverage before the law required it. Still, there was not much appreciation for that. You know why? Had a relatively young census. They call them belly buttons in the business. So they weren't at the point where they were engaging health care in a critical way. Four to five percent of your employees engage health care in a critical way. Now that I've done this for 11 years, it's 44 percent of my employees. They now know what it's like to where they don't use the health care system as much as others. Because remember, I stress wellness, not remediation. And when you need it, I've created the tools to where it's not going to break the bank. Never forget, we went live. Uh, one of the employees still with me had a medication, told it earlier here in a panel, 200 bucks a month. Skin in the game is the key to anything in this world. If you don't have it, you use more of it. And if you got an industry that is not competitive and transparent, it's like fuel on the fire of inefficiency and high prices. He said, Mike, this is going to hurt with that $10 copay that was costing $9,800 a year, that plan that I had in place, that was no longer sustainable. And I had a young profile. Now Cadillac plans are twenty to 30000 That's how bad it's gotten. I said, have you ever shopped around for your medication? He said, well, why would I with a $10 copay? Great counterpoint. <laughs> said, humor me. Let's see if we can find it without going to Canada. It took him about 15 seconds. He found that $200 medication for 99 bucks. It really, I couldn't believe it. I said, this can't be happening. This is in 2008. It was on an online pharmacy. That needs to happen every time you engage the healthcare system. Because when you do it, good things happen. You save 30 to 70%. The tools have actually grown a little bit. And then when you throw things in like telemedicine, health savings accounts, all the tools you can take it to the next level with, you don't pay any more in my company now than you did in 2008 because I actually lowered family health care premiums by 200 bucks a month. No, actually, it was about $1,400 a year. Unheard of in any company, because I made it consumer-driven, and I found the best of what the industry has to offer, which is not very good. So whether it's Medicare for all, which will break the bank, Healthcare has got to change. The industry needs to lead by being competitive and transparent, or they'll regret it. They'll have a business partner. His name is 
Bernie Sanders. That would be a travesty. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you, Senator. So today we have the honor of welcoming Seema Verma, who is the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. She administers coverage programs today that cover more than 100 million people, including one that might be abolished if proposal like Medicare for All were to become law. Um, her track record as a leader is one of innovation. She has continuously put forward reforms that allow people to have more control over their health care, and that's led to lower health care costs and, and better choices for individuals. Um, government affects nearly 80% of all health care spending today, and the administrator oversees a lot of that. Um, and she often talks to medical patients and providers, um, so she's in a great spot to help us understand what would change under proposals like Medicare for All. So with that, please welcome Seema Verma. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great Good to be here. <laughs> so Medicare for All and proposals like it, let's call it Medicare for All light, would fundamentally change who is in charge of health care decisions today. Um, things like coverage, benefits, access to care. Um, is that the right way to go? And, and can you help us think through what would change for people under those proposals? Sure. Well, for starters, I will say no, it's not the, the, the right way to go. And as head of the Medicare program, I feel like I'm uniquely positioned to understand some of the day-to-day challenges in the Medicare program and why this would be a bad solution for the American people. Um, what we're talking about is taking 180 million people and taking away their private coverage. And so, you know, I'm going to ask uh, of the audience, how many of you have private coverage? And how many of you like your private coverage? And how many of you want to keep your private coverage? <laughs> Pretty much everyone. Yeah. And so, you know, that's sort of what, what we're seeing when we talk to people. Most people do like their private coverage and they, they want to keep it. So this would move everybody into the Medicare program. It would be at a cost, and I think there's been some estimates of about $32 trillion. And, you know, essentially what that would mean, obviously, is increased taxes for all of us. And it puts us in a situation where as our taxes go up, it puts the government in a situation where they need to make tough choices. And that's where you see rationing of care. You see long wait times. This is the experience that other countries have had when they have created these types of programs. Um, we see people coming from all over the world, whether it's Canada, maybe not for medications, but um, you know, people do come to this country because they know that they can access some of the most innovative treatment in the world. And so, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that we should all be concerned about is sort of the access and the wait times. And it's also, I think, the most important point is it's putting Washington in charge of our health care. And if we look at where government-run health care or Washington's track record, um, I think that's something that should give us all pause. So if we look at, uh, let's think of the, the one that, you know, has probably been discussed the most, um, is Obamacare and what happened there. This was a large takeover of the individual market. And the impact, I mean, whether you like Obamacare or not, I mean, the facts are that rates went up by 100% in some areas of the country, 200%. So the premiums went up. 
um, choices went down. You know, we saw insurers leave the market, flee the market, and in some parts of the country, there's only one issuer. And when you've got one issuer, you're creating a virtual monopoly. And studies have shown is when there's only one issuer, of course they're going to be increasing their rates because they can. So that hasn't worked, and I think there's wide acknowledgement from both sides of the aisle that Obamacare hasn't worked. So that's, you know, our latest example of where the government has not stepped up to the plate. And then if we look at the Medicaid program, Medicaid program, you know, started out, um, you know, I would say not a huge portion of a state's budget, and now it's the number one or two budget item for, for every state. States are struggling to pay for this program. And if we look at this large investment that we've made, where are the outcomes for the program? We don't even actually know because we haven't, the government hasn't collected data and hasn't held states accountable for what they've actually produced in the program. So it's costing more. Um, doctors won't even see patients on the Medicaid program and the outcomes are unclear. And then, you know, there's been a lot to be said about the Medicare program. We do have a lot of high satisfaction, but the Medicare trustees report is telling us that the Medicare program is not sustainable and that in seven years it's going to run out of money. So, you know, while people are calling for Medicare for all, that program in and of itself is not sustainable. Um, our administration wants to strengthen the program, protect the program, make sure it's sustainable over the long term. So we need to work towards that instead of forcing so many more people onto the program. Those are, those are some serious facts to consider. Um, you touched on this a bit. Help us maybe unpack it a bit more. Um, you know, when we at Heritage talk to people about um, some of their hopes and their fears for health care, one thing that keeps coming up over and over again is, you know, I want to know that I, or especially I want to know my loved one can see a doctor um, when they need care. And you talked a little bit about what might, what might shift for people under proposals like Medicare for All. Do you want to help us unpack that just a bit? Sure. And especially when it comes to providers, I think it impacts them significantly because what we're talking about is Washington, D.C. setting reimbursement rates for providers. Um, that's concerning because in many cases, Medicare reimbursement is far below what they can get in the commercial market, and providers make it work because they do have commercial reimbursement. Um, what we're seeing, though, is a lot of providers don't want to see people on public programs. Medicaid is a great example, but even in Medicare, we're seeing a lot of providers moving towards direct primary care. Um, they don't want to have the government in the way, and they want to be able to see patients directly. So, because of that, if you create this entirely government-run system where everybody's forced to participate in this government-run program, um, you're, there's going to be doctors that are not going to participate. And so you're going to have a, you know, less doctors in the system that are willing to accept this reimbursement. And because of that, that's where you get into access issues, longer wait times. Um, you know, and, and I, I look at this also not only as a policymaker, but as a, you know, as a, as a patient. Um, and the experience that I've had, um, just within, within my own family. So my husband has a very serious cardiac condition. And we found out about this in a, you know, a, a kind of a surprise way where he was running through the airport and he essentially collapsed, had a seizure, went into cardiac arrest. He had to be shocked six times, and, you know, this was completely out of the blue. There were no symptoms, absolutely nothing. And when he was treated, um, it was the, the widow maker, and it was a 99% blockage. So, you know, just a, a miracle that he survived. And there was a lot of anxiety for me, you know, and for even the doctors were saying, look, this came out of the blue. And so they treated him for that. 
but they decided to give him a defibrillator. And so what that means is if he ever did go into cardiac arrest, this would revive him right away. And they felt like they needed that because he was so young and there was no nothing that kind of led up to this. And so our insurance company did pay for it. Um, but come to find out when I left as the administrator of CMS that Medicare would not have paid for that defibrillator. And so I think that's a great example of what patients might go through because there's the government making decisions. My husband needed that service. He needed that to give us peace of mind. The doctors were recommending that the government-run program would not have paid for that. And so I think that's something that I think we all need to think about as patients. You might not be a patient now, but when you are going to be a patient, we want to make sure that people have access to innovative treatments. And that's something that, as the administrator, I can tell you we struggle with because of how the law is set up. We have very narrow uh, requirements that are set up by law that says what we can cover, when we can cover it. And then the government, in and of itself, is a bureaucratic beast that has to go through a long process. And so you have cases where people can't get services that are paid for. Oh, and I, I didn't know that about your husband. Is, he's, he's okay now? He's fine. All good. All good at the ranch. And, I mean, and that's, <laughs> that is a scary story, and that's why people care so much about this conversation. Um, you know, I, I'm glad to hear he turned out, that things have turned out well. Um, you know, it's, it's, you touched a little bit, not to go right back to policy wonkiness, but you talked a little bit about um, this, like, what essentially is a pretty innovative, still relatively innovative um, care treatment for your husband. Um, and when we look at sort of where healthcare is going, it's increasingly about um, these, these incredible medical care delivery innovations. Um, you know, and, and one of the things we see is like even care can become, it's getting to a stage where it can be so personalized to individuals. Like you can get a genetic test and you can find out what is the care for you as an individual. Um, and yet we see kind of this call at a policy level by some to go in this very one size fits all benefit model. Um, what do you think would happen to innovation and, and, and the kinds of treatments that Really, I mean, it's kept your husband alive and so many other people alive. Sure, and that's one of the things, I think one of the, the main concerns we should all have as Americans is what does it do to innovation? Um, as the administrator, one of the things that the agency really struggles with is when new innovative treatments come to the market. And a lot of the problem is that Congress says, well, you can cover durable medical equipment, you can cover supplies, and you can cover drugs. Sounded great when they wrote that law maybe 30, 40 years ago, but it doesn't make sense in today's environment. All of these new technologies and treatments are coming out, and they don't fit nicely into what, how the law has been constructed, and it creates problems for the agency, and, I, and I'll give you a few examples. One of them was um, insulin pumps for diabetics. Uh, you know, for years, they had some very creative pumps that people could use, and they were using them in the private sector, but when they got on to the Medicare program, Medicare wasn't covering them. So the private sector, and not like it was a brand new thing, it was for many years this was going on. And we figured out a way to move forward to have Medicare pay for those things. I think the Trump administration has been very focused on strengthening the program, protecting it, and making sure our, our seniors have the best possible experience. But that took years for us to be able to provide that treatment. The other thing that we're struggling with now is there's some new treatments that, um, you know, in that case, that we had to figure out whether it was a supply or a device. But now we're even getting into a new era of treatment where there's nothing even close to it. And it creates access problems for patients. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one of them is in the space around antimicrobials. 
Uh, this is a serious public health issue. You probably have all heard about these super bugs and people get infections and there's no antibiotic that can treat them. And the federal government has recognized this. I mean, this could be a significant public health issue for the country and had created some opportunities for investors and to get companies to develop these antibiotics. And that part of the system worked. Um, but what would happen is they would come to CMS and what the way CMS's regulations and the law are set up is that we have to sort of say, okay, is this comparable to something out there? Um, and it's an antibiotic. Antibiotics are relatively cheap. And so we're like, well, well, that's an antibiotic. Well, we already have an antibiotic and we're already paying for this. So you can just get the same, paid the same. Well, that has completely thwarted innovation in the development of antimicrobials. And so companies were like, we can get this to market, but then the government's not going to pay for it adequately or appropriately. And so what that has done is, you know, all of the innovation in that particular space has, is drying up. And that creates a problem where, you know, many of us could get an infection and there would not be a treatment. So the point here is that the government's already struggling in the Medicare program with how do we support innovation. We need to reform some of our rules and regulations and the law to make it work. Um, the other area is the development of CAR T. Now, this is a you know a very innovative cancer treatment. Many of you heard about this. It's almost you know in some cases it's been people have been on the verge of death and they've gotten CAR T treatments, a cancer treatment. Um, uses uh, the, the body's own T cells to kind of fight the cancer. Very innovative treatment. When this treatment came, was approved by the FDA, um, CMS didn't know how to pay for it. We didn't have the data. We weren't sure, is this a drug? Is this a process? And so, and the way that our system works is we have to see, well, what does it cost? How are hospitals are paying? It takes us years to figure out how to even pay for something. And in the meantime, that means patients aren't getting access to these innovative treatments. And if you can imagine, now, you know, these treatments are available in the private sector. Somebody's paying for them, which is great because people are getting access to them. If we put the entire country into the Medicare system so they can come to my office to go through this very convoluted process to be able to get coverage, we're not going to see the type of innovation that we've seen in our country. Um, innovators, when they get something approved by FDA, then they have to come to CMS. They have to, you know, and there's three separate tracks. They have to figure out whether this is going to be even be covered by CMS. Then if it's covered, then we have to give them a code. And we have some temporary measures, but they go through the process. And the government has only handed out these codes once a year. And we're changing some of those things. And then they have to figure out how they're going to get paid and if they can fit into our payment methodologies. There's already a lot of burdens there. We're trying to streamline the process. The president's very focused on supporting innovation so we can make sure our seniors have it. But can you imagine if we started treating all of innovation in the country in this way? And I think it would, I think it would bring innovation to a standstill. None of that sounds um, – I'm glad you're working on improving it, but it does sound like a, like a serious thing to think about having one sort of – center choke point, if you will, or bottleneck, um, trying to make all these decisions for us when today they're, they're, um, the innovations that you talked about that have successfully come to market are in fact coming to market because there's a private, a strong private element still in our healthcare system. 
Um, so I do. You touched a little bit on the challenges that uh, that you're working through and reforming of the current system. Um, you know, a lot of people, uh, when we talk about Medicare for all, um, there's a sort of this assumption that it's just a, a, a expanded Medicare program. But in reality, it would be outlawed. So what would happen for people who are currently getting their coverage through Medicare today? And, and how would, are they better off? Well, I'm very concerned about the negative impact that it would have um, on our beneficiaries and our seniors. I mean, this is a program that people have paid into their entire lives. And now we're saying we're going to put force everybody into the program. And some of the issues that we've talked about in terms of rationing of care, long wait times, providers may say, I'm not going to participate in this government program, so there's fewer providers. And we put our seniors in a position where they're waiting in line for services. They've paid into this program their entire life, and now we're deprioritizing them. We're not going to be focused on seniors. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's moral, um, considering the promise that we've made to them. So, you know, a lot of concern for them. I think the other issue that people sort of talk about is, you know, what is the impact on them? Our focus should be on protecting and strengthening the program and fixing some of the issues. The fact that, you know, the program is going to run out of money in seven years should be cause for alarm. And I think lawmakers, um, policymakers should be focusing on that issue and fixing some of the issues. You know, one of the things um, that comes up that I hear all the time is, well, we should have Medicare because Medicare has low administrative rates. I mean, that's an argument that I hear time and time again. Well, part of the issue is when they're doing those calculations, some of the pieces that um, uh, that would happen in a normal program in terms of enrollment. That doesn't even happen in the Medicare program. It actually happens with the Social Security Administration. So you'd have to look at some of their costs that are not computed. But the reality is, in some areas, we're not spending enough. And so if we look at program integrity and fraud and abuse, I mean, the program is wrought with fraud and abuse, and we're wasting a lot of taxpayer money on this because the government isn't actually spending enough. Policymakers um, have not given the agency the type of authority that you would have in the private sector. The private sector is way better at detecting fraud and abuse because they have an incentive to do that. Right? They, they're you know accountable to uh, tax you know to their uh, beneficiaries. But with, with the government, they're not accountable. And so we do see large examples of fraud and abuse. We see that we're not taking advantage of some of the new technology that's out there, artificial intelligence, because our the way the law is structured is it gives very limited tools for the government to go after fraudsters. Yeah, my mother is is the age for to go on Medicare, and so I, listening to this and hearing you know those concerns, that's something that's really powerful to me too. And I think um, it's I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that you have your eye on the problems, but. I certainly think that there sounds like a, a lot of right things for us to be paying attention to in the near future. Um, and you, you sort of um, have touched a little bit on a couple things um, that I want to I want to sort of tease out. Um, pro- medical providers, you know, the other side of this equation, like the the doctors, the nurses. Um, you know, we we hear a lot when you look at the research and you talk to people at Heritage that they're really really frustrated with the current approach that they have to deal with. They um, they don't like the red tape. They don't like dealing with government payment structures, um, and they, they report feeling a lot of burnout. Um, and sometimes when you ask, what, why are you feeling burned out, they, they talk a lot about government regulations. Do you think that's gonna, what's going to happen, like Medicare for All is sold as something that's going to make that better because you don't have to deal with so many different payers. Is, is that something that's really going to improve their life? Or, and if not, what, where should we be looking at? 
No. <laughs> so, so, so let me start with kind of a, a broad um, stroke here. It, it, I think when it, I'm very sympathetic to what has happened to the practice of medicine. I mean, medicine has typically attracted some of the best and brightest in our country. And um, they go to med school, you know, they go to college and then med school and residence. So it's years and years of training. And if you look at their day to day, they are trying to deliver their scientists and they're delivering patient care. They're also managing, you know, complex teams that are involved in somebody's care. And on top of that now, because of all the government regulation requirements and paperwork, then at the end of their day, they're doing all of this type of, you know, new, new paperwork. And it is alarming. I mean, we're hearing about the suicide rate for doctors go up. We're hearing about burnout. We're hearing about people leaving the profession. We're also hearing, because there's been so much regulation, um, a lot of them are giving up their independent practices. So doctors have typically had their own solo practices. And part of that is because of government policy. So if I look back at the last 10 years, and I hear that doctors are frustrated, um, but you know what I hope they'll understand is the source of their frustration is Washington, D.C., and the government. And so let's look at the problems that they faced. Number one, the competition issue where they can't compete. And so a lot of them are being, you know, selling their practices to big hospital systems. That's because the government, the Medicare program, DC decided that it was okay that we pay hospitals more for the same services that doctors could see. So, you know, a patient would go and see their a normal physician visit in a hospital outpatient setting. And we pay them more than we pay the doctor in their office. So there's this differential there. So, of course, they can't compete. And that's not the only place that we do it. The 340B program, that was an example where hospitals were able to take advantage of this pricing, that they get, you know, more money through the 340B program. And because of that, they bought out a lot of oncology practices. And so it's government policies that have created an unlevel uh, playing field for doctors, and they haven't been able to compete, and they've given up their practices. So they've given up a lot of the autonomy that they have had in the past. So I think that's you know directly related to government policies. Now our administration is taking those issues on head on. We've uh, you know done work on site neutral payments on 340B, the um, accountable care organizations. I think that also the way that was set up, it was set up to favor large hospital systems, and we've tried to create more competition so that you know physician led practices. Um, can be on a level playing field, and, the, and, we, and they've actually done a, a great job in saving dollars. So that's the first thing I would say is that the government, you know, put them in a situation where they couldn't compete. And the other thing is if we look at some of the major problems that doctors are complaining about, they're complaining about their electronic health records. They do not like them because they were built for billing systems. And guess what? It was the government, Washington, D.C., that forced them to use these electronic health records. And we told doctors, you know, your reimbursement is going to be tied to whether you're using these electronic health records. You created this whole industry. They were forced to use these systems. So the systems, of course, don't work for them. They work for as a billing system. And they're very frustrated. Many of you go probably into the doctor's office and you see your doctor isn't looking at you and they're staring at a screen. Mm -hmm. So they're frustrated by these um, EHRs. And then the other piece that Washington, D.C. has created is the macro program. Now, 
I think everybody's relieved that we fixed the SGR, and that was clearly a problem. But now what we've created is a new uh, Washington program where providers are having to report all of these metrics. And the, the way that D.C. created all of these quality metrics were a lot of process measures, you know, process measures like, did you do a history and physical with the patient? Well, those are routine things. So the government then created all of these quality metrics under the guise of quality metrics. And that basically meant that providers after hours, late at night, are having to, you know, by hand find, report all of these measures to the government. So in addition to their day-to-day seeing patients, saving lives, trying to keep up on the latest innovation, reading scientific articles, they have to come home at night and do all of this reporting. So it is Washington, D.C. that has created the problems for doctors. I recently went to the AMA and gave a speech about this, and, you know, we got a standing ovation because I think they understand that it is government that has done this. Now, that being said, there are a lot of doctors now that are, you know, moving in, in a different direction. The vote was pretty close there. So I think it's something that um, one of the things that I hope the rest of the industry hears that um, other private insurance companies that we all need to be working together to ease the burden for uh, doctors. Yeah, the frustration is real and we need to make sure that we're diagnosing the, the right cause of that frustration so we don't make it worse. The, when I hear you talking, I have this vision in my head of doctors having the world's worst boss in the form of the government, which we've all had a bad boss, but you know, I, I, we want to make sure that that gets better, not worse. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that we saw, you know, certainly last night, and if anybody watched the Democrat um, primary debate, there was a lot of talk about, you know, let's do something not quite as, as uh, interventionist as Medicare for all might be with outlawing private coverage. Let's just have a new government-run option for everyone. You've done a lot speaking out saying that you have real concerns about, about Medicare for all light. Um, why is that? Why, you know, it, it sounds kind of reasonable, more choice. Isn't that great? Don't we all want choice? Sure. And, and I think that the, the public option, um, as some folks are calling for it, to me, it's just another version of Medicare for all. And so we should call a spade a spade. Um, the, the concern there is with a public option is that you're having um, the government compete against private, um, private insurers. The way that the government has saved money or is, is able to offer what, you know, what people will say is a lower cost plan is because they pay the doctors less, far less than what they can get in the commercial market. Um, and, you know, these are the reasons why we have access problems in the Medicaid program, and there are still providers that won't take public programs. And so now, with the, if you have a public option, presumably if people start using that program, I think they could face access problems where a lot of providers will say, we're not going to accept this type of low reimbursement. So the people that are signing up for those public option programs could face a lot of difficulty in access. But I think the more important point is the impact that it would have on everybody else. Because those providers are getting lower reimbursement, they're going to increase their rates to other private payers. And that's where you see, that means that's higher premium. So all of you that raised your hands said, I have private insurance. If you're not in the public option, then that would mean that your rates would potentially go up because you're almost subsidizing what the public option isn't paying. I think the other piece here is that, you know, the government does not have incentives to compete for quality and value. There's no competition, essentially. And, you know, if we look at issues like fraud and abuse, the government doesn't have an incentive to go after fraudsters because they can just go to the federal government and they'll just keep paying. 
I think a great example of this is um, what happened with Obamacare's co-ops. So the idea here was, in lieu of a public option, we created these not-for-profit plans, and the government invested in developing these not-for-profit plans. Essentially, they couldn't compete, and the vast majority of them went belly up, you know, cost taxpayers, you know, over $2 billion for this investment. In, in the world of a public option, there would be no, they went belly up. The government would then step in again and just give them more money so that they could continue, whether they were competitive or not. And so I think these are some of the issues that um, we all need to think about with the public option because it's not just choice. It could have a terrible impact on the, on the rest of the market. Wow. Um, and so th- I just we're going to wrap up here because um, I want to be respectful of your time. But, um, you know, we, we started this by saying that Americans do have some really – genuine frustrations that need to be addressed. We can't just keep letting costs go up. We can't let choices go down. And we can't let this sense of just deep disempowerment um, but by both doctors and patients continue. Um, now, you, uh, in your leadership role in the administration, have done a lot to start to address these things. And you've, you've pursued some innovations to lower costs, improve choices, um, protect vulnerable people with pre-existing conditions who are sick. And they're leading to some really good results. Do you want to just Share briefly what, what you're thinking there is so we can go out on a note that says there, there are some solutions that we think would work. Sure, and I think one of the things that's, that's sad about the discussions that we're having is that all we're talking about is who pays for things. Right. Let's just have the government pay for everything. That's not a solution. What we need to come together on is how do we address health care costs? And the, you know, one of the things that hasn't happened with all the legislation over the past 10 years is we've done nothing to bend the cost growth curve in our country. And until we address that issues, we're always going to be having these conversations, and the government doesn't have the solution to this. What our administration is focusing on is exactly that. How do we get to the underlying cost drivers? And that's why you see the president so engaged on drug pricing, because that's an area where we see a lot of growth. Um, So we're addressing drug pricing. Generally, I think our concept is we want to create more competition in the marketplace. We don't have a marketplace. I mean, the reality is the government is controlling almost 47% um, of the healthcare market, and we've never had a marketplace in healthcare, and that's what we're trying to create. We want to empower patients to make decisions that are going to work best for them, and we see that by making sure they have cost information, so cost and quality transparency, and that they have access to their medical record. We want to create an environment where, and as the senator said, you know, patients are shopping around for the best deal. And providers are competing for patients on the basis of cost and quality. So all of our policies are geared towards creating that type of environment. So people can just pick up their phone. And, you know, not everything is shoppable, but for services that are, that they can just pick up their phone and say, I need this. Mm -hmm. And they're going to see which provider has the best quality and what the cost is going to be. And then they have all their information with them. So it makes it easier for them to shop around. Um, just this week, we announced, uh, I think there's been two major announcements this week um, coming out of HHS. At CMS, we announced a broad effort to require hospitals to post all of their rates. That's just the beginning of um, what we're doing. And this is all in response to the president's executive order on price and quality transparency. So that was one step. And just this morning, they talked about uh, reimportation. So again, we're trying to take on some of these cost driver issues head on. So a vision for uh, really meeting the concerns that Americans are telling us that 
different than the ones that we spent the bulk of this conversation talking about. Hopefully we can have you back to talk about that some more at some point. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Nina Otrenko Schaefer. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm glad that you all um, are here to continue the conversation we're having um, on Medicare for All and what it means for everyday Americans. Today, we are joined by a distinguished panel of health policy experts who will share their insights on Medicare for All, what it might look like in practice, and how such a plan might affect how Americans get their health care today. I'll do some brief introductions so that we can keep the conversation moving. I'll allow the speakers to offer their comments, and then we'll open it up to the audience for some questions. Um, Grace Marie Turner is president of the Galen Institute, a public policy research organization that is dedicated to advancing patient-centered healthcare reform solutions. We'll then hear from Sally Pipes, the president of the Pacific Research Institute, a public policy think tank focused on advancing free market policy solutions. And Merrill Matthews, resident scholar at the Institute of Policy Innovation, a free market policy think tank that focuses on issues related to economic growth, innovation, limited government, and individual liberty. And with that, Merrill, I'll turn it over to you. Right, who's, are you going to do the slides? Or do you, you, have want, a, you have the clicker right here. And which one do I click? Okay. Very good. All right. Well, thank you, Nina, and uh, thank the Heritage Foundation for having this timely um, event. Uh, did any of you see the debates last night? <laughs> I um, uh, one of the things I've noticed from the Democrats when they talk about health care, two things they agree on. Number one, the current health care system is an absolute mess. Nobody seems to point out that's Obamacare. <laughs> the uh, the media seem to be very generous in just not saying, but isn't that the system that you passed here uh, uh, 10 years ago and said this thing was going to work really well? The second thing is they all agree that a, the goal is a single-payer health care system. Some just want to keep employer-based health insurance for a little while before they get there. Um, so I've been tracking health policy issues for more than 30 years now. I uh, used to get over to England and to Canada a fair amount. And when I did, I often looked at the newspapers and saw the stories in the newspapers that were running in the media there. And I thought, this is a, this is a different story than what you hear in the media here. Uh, and so I've been carrying some of these things around with me for a long time. 
we didn't have the internet back then, but I've kept a lot of these stories, and so I thought I'd just bring you some of these stories from the major media from the United Kingdom and from Canada. This is not Breitbart London reporting these stories. These are major media stories that um, uh, where they talk about the healthcare systems in those countries. So this is the media you can believe. We'll start with the first one here. Kidney patients die as costly dialysis machines lay idle. Uh, the chart over there is the machines in the dialysis machines in London with the number of people or how, who are using it versus how many they could actually use. Because what's happening is the government decided where the dialysis machines would go. They put more in London, which had more political power than they did out in the country. And as a result, people out in the country of England weren't able to get in to get the dialysis machines. They were packed out in the hinterlands. And so people were in the midst of waits. You can't wait for a kidney dialysis machine. You got to have it three times a week. Uh, and so one of the uh, one of the administrators there in the piece says, "I don't know what's happening. These people out there who are in lines, I assume they die because they can't get the machines. But in London, there's plenty of space because that's where they uh, they uh, put the machines. So." You have the uh, the issue of the government misallocating resources in places that are more politically powerful, but it creates shortages in other places. Am I too old to be treated? Uh, this is uh, this comes out from the early '90s, and it was uh, the story has got several people that it mentions in there uh, who are have turned 65 and can no longer get certain types of care. Whether it's uh, assistance from other people, one man is, uh, he's 75, he needs a, uh, he needs a pacemaker, and they said, sorry, you're too old to get a pacemaker. Now he raised enough of a fuss that he finally got a pacemaker, but they were not, the arbitrary age was 65. If you were over 65, a lot of things in the system you could no longer get. Now I don't know that that's still the case, because these are political decisions, Rather than market decisions, when you get enough political pressure, they may come up and say, okay, we're, we're going to change this. We'll put some more money here. We'll put some more money there. But that was, uh, that was at least the problem. There were several stories at the time that came out. I've got another one here. Too old to be treated for cancer from about the same time. Person was over 65. They didn't want to treat him. Rationing to balance the books. When you, um, Bernie Sanders last night pointed out, he said, Canada, this uh, country just north of us, they've got, uh, they've got great care, universal coverage. They spend half of what they, uh, we do on health care. What they never mention is those are government decisions. They make it, they make it sound like they're, uh, it's, they spend less because they are much more efficient. It is not because they're more efficient. It's because the government says we're going to spend this much on health care and no more. And so sometimes they run out of money on that. In fact, virtually every time, they always are struggling for money. It's just like education in this system. How many liberals think we're spending enough money on education? Uh, most of it for the K through uh, 12 goes, it's, it comes from the government. So um, they have to sometimes balance the books because they're spending, they're, they're spending, there's the needs 
exceed the money that they have allocated. And as a result, they, uh, they have to do some uh, rationing there. And here they said what they decided to do in this story was that they were just not going to, uh, for people who were smoke or are obese, you would not get hip replacement, you wouldn't get knee surgery. There are several things that they decided you just wouldn't get because we don't have the money to go around and we have to ration it somehow. Dying because of shortages. They're, um, they have the system there where uh, the article argues that there are people dying of starvation and malnutrition, uh, malnutrition, starvation, dehydration in the hospitals on a regular basis. Let's see, I've got it right down here. And the, um, yeah, I don't see it right now. But the uh, what's happening there is there people, the hospitals are overcrowded. They can't get the care that they need. And uh, the there's not enough nurses to go around. So as a result, people, especially people who need help with eating, feeding, drinking, and so forth, they're not getting it. So they, they estimate that roughly two or three people a day die in the U.K. system because they are not being treated with uh, – so they're dying of starvation and uh, dehydration. Um, last one for United Kingdom. No, oh, there's that the dehydration thing there. Last one for the United Kingdom. Um, this, was, this was taken in 2016 uh, before Brexit. Once Brexit happens, that sort of swamps everything. But it's a survey of what they think are the biggest issues. Notice that the NHS is the second busy, biggest issue there. Now, if the system is that great, why would it be the second biggest issue for the population? We'll move to Canada. U.S. medics bill Ontario health insurance plan. What was happening in Canada, and this was about 1990, um, Canadians were jumping the queue there and going to, uh, going to America to get care. And the Ontario health insurance plan would pay for the care if they went to America. Well, there's waiting lines in Canada so people increasingly started jumping that line in order to be able to get the care that they need, especially surgery. And the, uh, the, art, the point of the argument here, the article, is that they were spending so much on health care, they had to do something about it. So I tracked this for a little while, and a few years later in American Medical News, they came up with the story, uh, Ontario slashes payments to U.S. in bid to cut cross-border care. They said, we can't afford this. People are jumping the queue. You can't escape the socialist health care paradise. We're going to make you stay here because we're not going to pay for it if you go to America to jump the queue anymore. That's one of the problems they've had for years in Canada. This is one of my favorite. John Goodman and I used to joke about this when we first ran across this back in the mid-1990s. Whoop, did it not go? Am I not pushing the right one? Ah, there. Okay. Humans wait in pain, dogs don't. This is the story of a guy named Greg Moulton, who is in, and according to the article, in the midst of a three-month wait for a brain scan. He's got excruciating headaches. He needs to go get a CAT scan. The CAT scan's at the hospital. There's a waiting list, so he can't get in. At night, it closes down to humans, and it opens up to pets. And if you're a veterinarian, you can take a pet and have a CAT scan done that night 
for $300. Greg Moulton is quoted saying, I'd go any time to get the, uh, to get a CAT scan in order to be able to treat, uh, see, so the doctor can find out what's the uh, cause of my excruciating headaches, but he can't because in Canada, you can't jump out of the system. You, if you're a human, you have to stay in the system. You can't do something else. So Bernie Sanders says we need a system uh, in which that puts people before profits. What Canada has is a system in which put, that puts pets before people. Editorial from the Toronto Sun, Canada's medical wait times are unacceptable. This is citing two studies, one from the Fraser Institute, which has been doing this for some time, another from one of the uh, uh, systems there, the uh, uh, Canadian Institute for Healthcare, Health Information, and it just cites the list of the waiting lists that go on in Canada. This is the, the press here wants to try to imply that doesn't go on. It absolutely does go on in Canada. Now, it tends to go more for elective surgery, and there a lot of things are elected that we might see necessary here, but the wait times there absolutely do happen, and they can be extensive. Whoops, did I go too far? I wanted the... Uh, that was the one that... Uh, this is the one where prescriptions are too expensive. This was done by the, a survey of the largest nurses association in Canada, which came up and said... Prescriptions are so expensive here that people can't afford them and they're dying because they can't get their prescriptions. Wait a minute. I thought I heard that prescriptions were really affordable up there. Apparently, they may not be. And then finally, this is a survey coming from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation about um, about what Canadians are worried about. Uh, you'll see in 2012, I think healthcare is the second uh, issue there, but come down to uh, 2018, and healthcare is the number one issue that they're concerned about. If it is good as good as Bernie Sanders tells us, why is it the number one issue they're concerned about? With that, I'll stop. <laughs> Um, well, I want to thank Nina for organizing this panel with my longtime friends, Grace Marie and Merrill. We've been fighting this healthcare battle for way too many years. I don't know how long we can keep it up, but we will till death do us part. <laughs> this morning, I received an email from a professor at Pasadena Community City College. I don't know how she got my email, but she said, Sanders and Warren, a one-two punch. They, 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 they won the case and they won the debate. And I thought, well, I didn't feel that way when I watched it. For those of you who don't know, I am Canadian. I grew up under single payer healthcare. I worked at the Fraser Institute for many years where we developed these waiting uh, list surveys. So Bernie Sanders, in his response to Mr. Delaney, um, who was saying, well, I don't think the American people are ready for the government takeover of healthcare. Bernie said, there's a country five minutes away from here. It's called Canada. They have no co-pays. They have no deductibles. There are no premiums. Healthcare is a human right, and everybody gets everything they want. I'm like, whoa. He never talked, neither did Elizabeth Warren, about how much it would cost, how much it would be paid, how it would be paid for, and what really happens in a country like Canada. So I'm going to add on to what Merrill has said with a few examples because I've been involved in this for so many years. 
Canada is one of only three countries in the world that has a true single-payer system. This is what Warren and Sanders want. Private health care coverage is outlawed in these countries. Only things that, the only things that um, can be paid for privately are things that are considered not medically necessary, LASIK surgery, cosmetic surgery, things like that. The government took over our health care system fully in 1984. We have Canada spends about 11% of gross domestic product on health care. We spend here about just over 18%. In Canada, the government sets a global budget. That's what they're going to spend on health care. The demand for health care is much greater than the supply. As a result, long waiting lists for care. The average wait last year in Canada from seeing a primary care doc to treatment by a specialist, just under five months. Back in 1993, that wait time was only 9.3 weeks. Bernie Sanders never talks about the 217,000 Canadians out of a population of only 37 million, fewer than in the state of California. 217,000 Canadians left Canada and went abroad or came to the U.S. to pay out of pocket for procedures where they felt the waiting time was too long for their health. Fraser just released a study showing that 1.1 million Canadians lost $2.1 billion in wages and salaries waiting for treatments. Meanwhile, there are scores of of empty operating rooms. My cousin, who graduated four years ago as an orthopedic surgeon, waited two and a half years to get a job as an orthopedic surgeon east of Toronto. Meanwhile, there are all these people on the waiting list, but why couldn't she get a job? because the government can't afford to make more jobs available. Um, There are real costs of of these waiting times, physical pain, mental anguish, loss of wages, as I mentioned. In many cases, people die on these waiting lists. Now, when Bernie talks about everybody in Canada gets care right away, my own mother died from colon cancer in 2005 because as a senior there were too many other people on the waiting list for a colonoscopy who had more serious, what they described as more serious symptoms. So my mother didn't get her colonoscopy, but by December, she was hemorrhaging. She'd lost 35 pounds. She went to the emergency room, spent two days in the emergency room, two days in the transit lounge waiting for a bed in a ward. She got her colonoscopy and died two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. Rationing care will happen under what Bernie Sanders is talking about. There are a few stories that are pertinent. Merrill gave some great examples. Michael Buble, the Canadian crooner, who I love his Christmas uh, CD, his son at age three was diagnosed in Vancouver. He said, I am a great Canadian, was diagnosed with liver cancer. Did Michael Buble stick around in Canada trying to get treatment, the best and the latest treatments for his son? No, he went to UCLA to the Children's Hospital, and today his son is in remission and cured from liver cancer. If the Canadian system is so great, why wouldn't a crooner like him stay home? Well, because he was concerned about the longevity and the life of his son. Uh, Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stone. Uh, I remember Mick Jagger when he was a young, young buck. Well, he, a young rock. A young rock, yeah. He, a young Rolling Stone. Uh, he was, um, had a heart, heart condition and they decided that he needed, um, a valve replacement. 
and he was in Florida. Did he rush back to England to take part in the National Health Service, even though Britain actually allows private health care to run parallel, and about 10% of Brits actually have private coverage? But no, he went to New York Presbyterian and had his heart replacement surgery there. His young brother, at age 71, said, it's a good thing that Mick didn't have to go to the NHS and stand in a waiting line. So these are sort of true examples of things that are happening in countries like Canada that Bernie Smith, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren never talk about. Canada has a system, too, where when you book your appointment with your doctor, you can only talk about one issue. You're allowed 15 minutes. So if you have two or three issues that you want to talk about, well, you have to book separate appointments. And, of course, the waiting times are very long, as we've talked about, and can be harmful to, to your health. So when Madam Chief, Madam Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin of the Canadian Supreme Court, who just retired uh, from the court, was ruling in the Chaouli versus the province of Quebec on denial of, of care, um, she said that access to a waiting list is not access to health care. Having a care card does not mean you can get a doctor. So when Bernie Sanders tells people everybody has a care card and everybody has care, well, they do have a care card, but they don't have access to care. So what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren want for the American people is not right, and it's unfortunate that he doesn't talk about it. And it's not free. The average Canadian family pays every year $13,000 in hidden taxes to pay for a system where care is rationed and the waits are long. If we get a single-payer system in this country, the United States will be on the road to serfdom and there will be no off-ramp because these systems are hard to get rid of even if they're not working. We will face long waits. We will face rationed care. We will have new taxes and higher taxes. We will have docs being paid at rates 40% below what they're being paid uh, for treating private patients. A lot of doctors will retire early from medicine. We've seen this under Obamacare. And as Seema Verma said, and it's a huge concern of mine, the best and brightest young people will not pursue a, a career in medicine. So we all want affordable, accessible, quality care. Putting doctors and patients in charge of their care will lead to universal coverage. As my friend PJ O'Rourke says, if you think healthcare is expensive now, just wait until it's free. Thank you. So why are we even talking about Medicare for all in this country? Oops, too close. It's because the American people are angry and frustrated. Their care costs too much. They can't afford their premiums. They can't afford their, deducti their deductibles, surprise billing. They're angry, and they are willing to listen to anybody that promises, promises them a way out. The, the tales that we have heard here will absolutely be where we will be headed here in the United States. And I think Administrator Verma's description of what it's like running the Medicare program, imagine putting another 240 million, 250 million people onto the existing Medicare program, it would absolutely, it would collapse the economy. In fact, that's something that the Congressional Budget Office found 
when the uh, Democrats actually asked CBO to give them parameters of what would be involved in setting up a single-payer system. CBO found that it would be a major undertaking that would be complicated, challenging, and potentially disruptive, that the changes could significantly affect the overall U.S. economy. Setting payment rates equal to Medicare fee-for-service would substantially reduce payments to doctors and hospitals. That could lead to a shortage of providers, longer wait times, changes in the quality of care, and especially if patient demand increased substantially. This is a CBO writing a report that Democrats requested that they believe and they released as something that was a roadmap to creating a single-payer system in this country. We've actually seen already several states trying to move to a single-payer system. Colorado had a ballot initiative in 2016 that would have moved the state of Colorado to a single-payer system. It failed four to one when people found out that, oh, my goodness, that means I'm going to lose my employer coverage. That's going to mean that I lose my current, the current coverage that I have now. It means that I'm going to have taxes that are so high that it's going to drive businesses out of Colorado. By four to one, the voters said no. Vermont, little Vermont, with a population the size of a, me- a medium-sized American city, tried four years to figure out how they could move the money around to create a single-payer system in Bernie Sanders' home state. It was a political disaster. They were not able to figure out how to do this in any way that also would not kill the Vermont economy, but that would also provide people with even a monochrome of the care that they are receiving now and anything that would be remotely affordable. So, yes, people are feeling powerless against the system. Yes, they're angry. Milliman reported the other day that the average American family now is paying, in one way or another, $28,000 a year toward our health care system. The government is controlling, either directly or indirectly, most of that spending. Mark Pauley recently did a study published by the American Enterprise Institute that showed that 80% of all spending in the health sector is under the influence of the federal government. But yet the other side somehow believes that if we have more government control, if they can just get control of all of it, then they can fix this. Well, Vermont, Colorado, California would like to do this, but they also can't figure out how to make how, how to make the dollars work. As Sally states, Sally's going to save us from California going in that direction. Hope so. It's, it's hard. California's tough. But I and I also want to to talk about what this would mean for for Americans if we were to go to a government-run system. The Sanders. Uh, plan would take us much more quickly. Representative Jayapal's plan to, within two years, they would set up a Medicare for all system. That would mean that 173 million Americans, including millions of union members, would lose their employer based coverage. 60 million seniors, who, as Administrator Vermis, uh, uh, Vermis said, 
have paid in all their lives to Medicare would lose the Medicare coverage they have and have to then compete with another 250 million Americans for access to the same underpaid providers. 20 million seniors would lose their Medicare Advantage plans that they highly value, plans that people are choosing on their own to, to move into private plans that provide them better care than Medicare fee-for-service. It would end the Medicare prescription drug program, the CHIP program, Medicaid, Obamacare, all of it would go away. Some of the other proposals say, well, maybe that is a little too extreme. So why don't we just have a public option or allow a Medicare buy-in? Even some conservatives say, that's fine. You know, the Medicare program, people like this. Why can't we just let people under age 65 buy into the Medicare program? My colleague Doug Badger did an analysis. If people were to pay the full premium for current Medicare, without any subsidies, it would be about $1,100 a month. The average policy on the exchange for full payment is about seven dollars or $800 a month. So it's not clear what problem that would solve. The current coverage would go away. And you have to ask yourself, what problem are they trying to solve? The Kaiser Foundation recently did a study of who are the 28 million uninsured so that we can figure out what are we, what are we, why are we doing this. 15 million of them are already eligible for either Medicaid expansion or ACA coverage in their states, just not signed up. Another 4 million or so are eligible for employer-sponsored coverage but are not signed up. Another two or three million have incomes that are high enough, maybe over four hundred thousand dollars a year, or four hundred percent of poverty, four hundred thousand a year. That would afford four hundred percent of poverty. They would buy coverage if it were affordable. But it's become so unaffordable in the individual and small group market. Of dad wrote to us telling us that his premiums were, would be four thousand dollars a month if he were to buy the only policy available for his family in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So looking at the problem, the problems there, and then the rest, the rest of the of the the uninsured are undocumented immigrants. That's not a healthcare problem. That's an immigration problem. So we are almost at full coverage. So we need to think about what really is the problem they're trying to solve. Well, they're saying Medicare for all is going to be completely free. They know the issue has moved to cost. The cost of care, the cost of coverage are the issue. More government is not going to solve this problem, whether it's the public option, whether it's Medicare buy-in, or whether or not it's Medicare for all. We need to move to the kind of market that allows the innovations that Senator Brown was talking about, allows some of the innovations that some states are beginning to use to do a better job of taking care of the 5% of Americans who consume 50% of healthcare costs because they're sicker and more vulnerable and they need more attention. A Medicare for all system would throw them into the same pool with everybody else, just like Obamacare did, driving up premiums, driving up costs, making it more difficult for them to get the care they need and making it more difficult for providers and hospitals to say to stay in business because of the low payment rates that they're currently providing. Our consensus, our health policy consensus group which has been meeting for 
decades to talk about free market ideas, moving power and control down to individuals to give them more choices, more control. The only way we are going to make this work is by by giving consumers the incentive to be able to have more control have, have, and have more control over their health spending and their health choices. The market will respond to them. Right now, the market is not functional because it is responding to bureaucrats, either private sector or public sector. The private sector bureaucrats are just wards of federal rules. We want them to respond to consumers. The only way they're going to do that is to have more control and power over the money. We have a website called healthcarechoices2020.org. A lot more information there about our solutions, but it's about devolving power and control to the individual, resetting incentives, giving people more options and more choice, and most importantly, giving the health sector the incentive to respond to consumers and their demands for more choices of more affordable coverage, the federal government has proven it is not capable of delivering that. Thank you. Well, thank you all. Uh, The panel did a great job, I think, in offering us a little bit of a window into what a uh, single-payer, government-run health care program would look like. Um, in our country and some of the concerns and risks of taking that type of a path. Um, With the time left, uh, why don't we take a few questions for the panel, and uh, we'll start over here. Wait, uh, Please wait for your microphone, and please um, introduce yourself so we know who you are. Oh, my name is Sharon Bovat. I'm voice of a moderate, but I'm also a woman who, after 19 years of marriage, my husband asked for a divorce. And I was actually more upset about losing my health care coverage. <laughs> and I had the divorce COBRA that was $400 that went up to $600. And then I went to the exchange because I have doctors at Georgetown. And for me to keep my doctors, the premium was $1,786 a month. Mm. Um, when you go to get any procedure done, if you get someone out of network, and sometimes it accidentally happens, the um, out of network was up, up to 12500 I make about less than 70000 The expected out-of-pocket, and my insurance coverage just ended and I started a new plan, um, is half my income. I did find an association plan, and it's 1100 almost 1200 a month, but it's only a $3,000 deductible. I'm grateful for my association plan, but... To pay for it, I got to take money out of my 401k tax free, and then I got to pay taxes out of that money. And I just think, so I had to, um, I mean, I'm juggling, but I own real estate. So I had my income comes from my real estate investments. So I can't go bankrupt. I don't want to go bankrupt. I'm not the kind of person that wants anything for free. I'm just tired of feeling like I'm being raped by the system. So if you, I know there's this Medicaid over 50, and I thought there was hope, and now I think that sucks. So now at this point, I would really like more opportunity, more associations. I do not need birth control. I've been through menopause. Thank you. The administration is trying to do several things to provide you more options. I'm glad to see that you were able to buy an association health plan. Short-term limited duration plans, people being able to buy a plan that actually can be renewed for up to three years, to be able to buy a plan that does not have to comply with all of the expensive Obamacare rules and mandates, which is what's driven up the cost of premiums to the point you can't even afford coverage, as well as the latest one, health reimbursement arrangements that allow that allow employers to provide a stipend to allow 
allow people to purchase coverage outside their employer or find other plans that are, are good. So the administration is trying to do some things in the interim, but ultimately Congress needs to, to tackle this and needs to move power away from Washington to the states, to individuals, so that there can be many more choices in a truly competitive market. You are faced with basically a monopoly provider, and it is that, and they are following Obamacare rules, and it's made it prohibitively expensive for you. And just to add that many of the um, people like Nancy Pelosi, Bernie Sanders, don't like people having more options. So they say the AHPs, the short-term limit duration plans, they're sabotaging the health market. They're all junk junk um, health coverage, and they're not. We want competition in this country that, in every industry, drives the price down. Do we have another question? Um, one bit. Either one, yeah. Yes, I'm Ronald Wilson. I'm from Harvard University in Boston, Massachusetts. I just wanted to uh, ask, what do you think as a forecast, who's going to win this fight in, in the uh, the long run? Mm. <laughs> that should well, have been if, our last we, question. That if, was a good one. Yeah, if we knew, we'd all we'd all be very, very wealthy make, <laughs> making bets on this. I mean, I would say um, the new Kaiser poll that came out yesterday showed the support for Medicare for All had fallen from 56% in April down to 51%. So I'm hoping that people are finally getting the message. So I think the American people just are going to come to the realization that Medicare for All or these stepping stone approaches like the public option, Medicare buy-in, are, are not going to be the answer to their health care. Who, who wins the, um, um, the Democratic nomination? I, I just don't know who it's going to be. And we also realize that the more people learn about it, it sounds like a great bumper sticker, Medicare for all. Every, yeah. Who wouldn't like that? But the more they learn, the more that people begin to realize it's not quite what I thought it was. I, I'm a little less optimistic than Sally because I think you have a lot of people who are expressing the same kind of problems this young lady had uh, and are just ready to throw up their hands. And to be clear, we had narrow networks and we had networks and other things before Obamacare. It exacerbated all of the problems. It just dramatically increased those problems. Um, even though we were kept saying, don't do this because here's what's going to happen. And the Democrats would say, it's not going to happen. President Obama's promised premiums to be $2,500 less for a family after four years. Um, but I think we're, a, a good portion of the public is getting ready to throw up their hands and just say, I'm, I'm tired of all this stuff. Just give me something that I can sort of depend on, and that may open the door for the single-payer system. Which is why our job is to educate people so they don't leap off right. of this cliff, right. so that they understand what will happen before they do it, and understanding where this leads, as, as Sally and Merrill explained earlier. Question back here. Um, hi. Uh, Andrew Kreis, um, student at Northeastern University across the river in Boston. Um, <laughs> so just to follow uh, up a little bit on that, um, I think there's a lot of uh, willingness um, from the public, as we've seen, to kind of throw up your ha their hands. As you were saying, there's a lot of frustration with the cost of the system. And you see all these, uh, all the money being raised on GoFundMes for, you know, people they know when they see the face of people struggling with these high costs. So there's a lot of willingness to, um, you know, be a lot more charitable and to offer up um, money for their communities. Um, as free market-minded um, individuals, how do you take that 
um, opt- uh, that commitment to community and that um, desire to um, help people out. Um, how do you take that energy, um, you know, without calling it socialism, because as we've seen, that's not really scaring the young younger generation as much as it does the older generation just by giving it that label. How do you take that energy and focus it into something that's not Medicare for all with that has all of these other implications that we're seeing and, and channel it into something that can actually um, provide better outcomes that people are striving for? Great question. Does anyone want to? It's never going to be one solution. It's always going to be a beautiful mosaic that's only American. Doctors would love to give their time to charity clinics, and many of them, despite all of their burdens, still do that to charity clinics, people providing help for their communities through um, through GoFundMe and through church uh, church efforts that are so that are so important in this country, but the foundation needs to be a better functioning market so that health care and health coverage are more affordable. And I believe that technology actually can be a solution to this, just as, a te- as a GoFundMe is created through, allowed through technology. There are 200 at least different companies that are developing apps to allow people to do a better job of tracking their own health care. We've already seen them with Apple Watches and Fitbits. But there is just an explosion of that. There are so many companies that are out there seeing the problems in the health sector and, frankly, getting rid of the individual mandate penalty was important because now people can buy other kinds of coverage from direct primary care to other kinds of indemnity plans. A lot of different companies are out there. If we can just begin to nourish and cultivate that, as as Administrator Verma said, if we have Medicare for all, it is going to kill innovation. We are right at that cusp right now. The administration is doing what it can to sort of fertilize that soil, but ultimately there needs to be legislation from Congress to truly enable a much more robust private market that's consumer-centric to to come, come about. I think I'll just add this one thing. I think you mentioned about how you sort of energize younger people to get involved in this. You know who's going to pay for all this? You. It's not going to be us. No, no. <laughs> it's going to be you and your generation. And that's that's been a mystery to me, both on Social Security, Medicare, and other things. They keep expanding these things, and they're passing the bill on to the younger people to pay for it rather than us. Uh, they're trying to get the votes now, but you're going to have to pay for it. Uh, another question at the end of that row. We'll start there. Right there at the end of that row. Um, so I agree, healthcare costs. Oh, sorry, my name is Stephanie. I'm going to be a AAAS science policy fellow this fall. Um, I agree, healthcare costs are out of control. But at the same time, when I'm sick or, God forbid, one of my parents gets sick, the last thing I want to do is shop around. So I'm wondering, is there a way we can, other strategies to control costs besides placing the burden on the patients? That's why you need insurance, and that's why you need insurance that you pick and you make decisions about what, a de- what deductible you can afford, how narrow you want the networks or not. But that needs to, you need insurance coverage to protect you if you get sick. And that's what, you, right now, the federal government's telling you what that insurance has to be, rather than you making decisions in a much more competitive market about coverage that you can afford that works for you. Well, and I think, too, with all – Grace Marie talked about the all the mandates 
Obamacare has 10 essential health mandates. Most states have 45 to 50 mandates. I may want a plan that has alcohol rehabilitation because I've been dealing with this too long. But, 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 She's joking. But, but, but people should be able to get the kind of plan that suits their needs and, and those of, of, of their families. And if we take, get rid of a lot of these, these mandates, the cost of health care will come down and you will have the type that you need. Another question right here in the yellow. Um, I'm Martha Lewis, and you've been very enlightening, and I read your newsletters. Um, is there any hope that our general media is going to enlighten the public the way you enlighten oh, yeah. us? I don't think there's much hope. I've been dealing with them for decades, and most of them I don't think really understand the issue. And if they do understand the issue, they refuse to say anything about it. I heard a lady on NPR the other day, one of their NPR's health policy person, mentioning about, well, if they get, if, if that, if that court ends up eliminate, eliminating Obamacare because of the lawsuit that's going on, we've got 143 million people on with pre-existing conditions. How are they going to get coverage if you don't have the man? And I thought to myself, do you think we had 143 million people uninsured before the, uh, uh, the, the guaranteed issue mandate went into effect. Uh, how do you think they got injured? They don't, they re, I, I don't want to say they're too stupid, but they're not bright enough to ask some of these questions that actually challenge some of the people. Nobody last night, when, when Bernie Sanders says Medicare is the most popular system, healthcare system in the country, we just want to expand it. None of the anchors ever say, but you'd actually end Medicare, wouldn't you? Yeah. They never say that. So I'm not, I'm not optimistic. You, you have to be selective in your reading. I probably the Wall Street Journal editorial page covers this really issue really well. Uh, Real Clear Health, the Daily Signal, the Heritage, the Heritage Foundation publication, AmericanHealthCareChoices.org. There are places to go for for news and information, and you just need to be selective and try whenever you can to forward those articles to your friends to really create a network so that you can, from the grassroots, start to inflict. I inform people. We're going to try to squeeze in two more questions. One in the back row here. Oh, sorry. Yeah, right here. Hey, Chase Floyd. I'm one of the health policy interns here at Heritage. And the other day, Kamala Harris offered up her alternative to Medicare for All and the public option, and she trying supposedly carving a rollout for private insurers and healthcare going forward. What do you make of her so-called Medicare Advantage for All plan? And what do you think are the similarities and differences with the other alternatives offered by the Democratic candidates? Well, I, I you know, Kamala Harris uh, flips every other week on whether she supports Medicare for All or trying to get around and, and sort of redeem herself for saying that. So she's come out with her 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 plan, and I think it's a disaster. I think even people on the, the left, to the left of her and to the right of her who are liberal – um, don't like her plan. She can't tell you how, how it's going to be paid for. She talked about getting $2 billion over 10 years in new uh, revenue from Wall Street, from bond sales and um, things. And, uh, you know, as Bernie himself said, his plan would cost 30 to $40 trillion over 10 years. So I think her plan is just another stepping stone approach to single payer. And probably she said her plan would come in over 10 years. Well, well, I don't know where in 10 years who will be in the administration, but I think, I think it's a disaster, but it's a way for her to get cover um, and raise her profile in the 
campaign. Yeah, you have to wonder if she really believes in it because she, even if she were elected and reelected, she'd be out of office before yeah. it took over. She wants to get out of town, yeah. so I'm not really sure that that's really that's a really right way to go about this. But she's basically offering a a public option or Medicare buy-in that is is just Medicare for all in a slightly slower role. Mm-hmm. That you can't have a health insurance company that has the ability to set prices, that has government enforcement powers, that that is has unlimited access to taxpayer resources, and expect a private company to be able to compete with that. And it wouldn't take long for private insurers to say, we're out of here. We'll just become public utilities. Federal government tells us what to do, and we'll do that. There's no way private insurance can compete with a federally taxpayer-supported program. That's Medicare for all, and it would just we would slide in that direction quickly. So she's really saying she's for Medicare for all, but not being brave enough to come forward and say it forcefully. And as one of my colleagues used to say, it's very difficult to have a level playing field when the government is both the umpire and the player. (laughs) Stuart Butler. Um, next question right here. Beverly's been holding her hand up. Thank you all today. I just want to say, as a health insurance agent for the last 17 years, most of the people, especially young people, have never purchased their own policy, have always been on mom and dad's plan. Many journalists have been in part of group plans. So as Sally said, when they destroyed the private market, those 6 to 10% of the people that were in the private market, unless you were one of those, you have no idea. But I think our way to get to young people is for them to understand children's policies before Obamacare were about 28 to $30. Mm-hmm. Marilyn and I wrote a piece about this. And also young people's policies were about 48 to $60. Right, yeah. And there was no subsidy required. And they had 17 to 23 carriers to pick from lots of competition, because they don't realize how it was. They keep looking at, well, the government needs to fix this. And quite frankly, it's the opposite. We need to undo what the government has done. One last thing, if I may, Nina. Um, My niece is a captain in the Salvation Army, and last year she was stationed in the U.K. and discovered that she needed to have a surgery. And they told her it would be two years before she could have the surgery, My, my hand to God. And so she came back. The Salvation Army said, we need to send you back to the United States. And she was able to get in within six weeks and have the surgery that she needed. Okay, I think we're going to close out um, for our discussion. I want to thank our panel. I think they did a fabulous job in really showing us what it might look like. And thanks for those who are covering the event. We can get the get the word out even more. Uh, thanks to the audience. And I'm going to end on a hopeful note. I think the young generation might be the hope for us. I think that this generation has a desire for innovation. They want choice. They want, um, uh, and they're willing to go out there and, and shop for what they want. And I think that having an understanding of what a real marketplace will work, I think that the trendsetters of the next generation will likely save us from the Medicare for All movement. And with that, thank you all. And please, there's a material out front, if you would please pick it up. Additional material. Sorry, Sally. No, that's okay. Good. Well, onward. I honestly, that was a fabulous job.
Thank you for your question. I'll give you a They don't, I know. Oh, okay. Between all the forums, doing forums like this.